Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide, lead us, show us what you'd want us to learn from this section. And as we watch the, the worship of you through Israel, and we ask you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles 35, we've had Josiah coming to the throne. He has a heart after God. He's been getting rid of all the idols in Israel and Judah. He's been re- reviving the temple. Remember, they, they found the the law of God in the temple and he tore his garments because he was so worried about what he heard about the curses that God pronounced on the people and God promised him that it would not be that the destruction was coming but not in his lifetime so that's where we are at this point so chapter 35 says in verse 1 moreover Josiah kept the Passover unto the Lord in Jerusalem and they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month and he set up the priest in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of the Lord and said to the Levites that taught all Israel, with, which were holy unto the Lord, put the holy ark of the house in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build. It shall no longer be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and his people Israel and prepare yourself by the houses of your fathers after your courses according to the writing of David, king of Israel, and according to the writing of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the families of the fathers of your brethren, the people, and after the divisions of the families of the Levites. So kill the Passover and sanctify yourselves, prepare your brethren, that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And Josiah gave the people of of the flock lambs and kids all for the Passover offerings, for all that were present to the number of 33,000 bullocks, which were of the king's substance. And his princes gave willingly unto the people, to the priest and to the Levites, Hilkiah and Zechariah and Zehiel, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offering 2,600 small cattle and 300 oxen. Kaniah, also in Shemariah and Nathaniel, his brethren, and Hashabiah, and Jeel, and Jahabad, chief of the Levites, gave unto the Lord, to the Levites for Passover offerings, 5,000 small cattle and 500 oxen. So we're going to stop there at verse 9. So here we are preparing for Passover. And this is something that is kind of interesting because Passover even to this day among the Jews, is a very important holiday. But apparently it was something in the Old Testament that got practiced on a hit or miss miss basis because even when they were wandering in the wilderness, they didn't practice Passover because you'll read in in, uh, Joshua that when they went over into the Promised Land, they had Passover and it had been the first time that they had practiced it even though Moses gave them the instructions to practice it. So it's kind of an interesting thing that today is one of the most important holidays for the Jewish people. But in their day, it was kind of forgotten about because they kept losing the law of God. They kept losing God's word and, and not paying attention to it. So it says, Josiah kept the Passover of the Lord on the 14th day of the first month, which is the day they practice it on the first day of their month, which is the month of Nisan and they practice it on the 14th day of that month which for us is around april-ish their their calendar floats around because they're on a lunar calendar rather than a solar calendar and um, we've talked about this 
when their calendar gets out of sync because the moon doesn't match the sun's orbits, uh, they get off by a few, almost by, by the wrong time. They'll add a full month as their leap, as their leap year. So we just add a leap year, a leap day every four, every four years and between, somewhere between 10, uh, 7 and, and 11, every 7 and 11 years, they add an entire month as a, as a leap year so that their calendar gets put back into sync and then as it moves slow, keeps moving forward, they will add, they'll get to a place where they add another, another month to it. So you'll have the repeat of their first month uh, twice um, on, on leap year. So that's how they get, keep their lunar calendar in sync. Um, and then it says he set up the priest in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of the Lord. So here we have his father did the same thing. He brought all the priests, got them back into their jobs and everything. And then his son took over and they all kind of just abandoned their post because nobody was giving tithes and offerings and supporting them. So they quit they quit coming to the church. You know, if they weren't going to get paid, they stopped. They stopped coming to serve. So Josiah encouraged them, get back here and do what God has called you to do. And, you know, he, he set them in their charges, their positions, their offices. And he said, make yourself strong for the service of the house of the Lord. Get back to the temple and serve. And this is something that's very interesting because we look at the way that the priests were paid. The priest did not have a full area where they could be, this is the tribe of Levi in there. They were given, they were given like 70 cities where they were scattered all over Israel so they could teach Israel from their cities. And they were given like five miles around the city to be able to tend their flocks and their, and their fields and everything, but that's all they had. And so what would happen is if they weren't going, if people weren't coming into the, temp the temple and offering their tithes and offerings, which went to the the priest, they eventually said, well, we're not coming here and starving to death. You know, you know, we're not coming here to work for free. We're going to eventually, they went back home and tended fields, you know, took care of sheep and started businesses and everything because they needed, they needed to live. And so this was the, what he's saying. He's saying, get back here, do what you're supposed to do. And during his day, they were going to give their offerings. And we talked about that in the last chapter. They got their offerings. They got the their ties and they were able to live. Verse 3 says, and he said to the Levites that taught all Israel that were holy unto the Lord, put the holy ark in the house of Solomon, the son of, in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build. It shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and be his people. So the Levites' job was a very simple one when they weren't carrying the stuff around to the temple. Their job was to teach the people. Now in Hebrew, this word is very interesting. One who gives understanding was what it means to teach them. Here's what it says. This is what it means. And this is something that's very important for us. We all need somebody to help teach us and give us understanding of what's being said sometimes. Now, God's word is pretty plain in some places, but there are plenty of places where it can get very confusing if somebody is not there helping us understand. Now, having said that, and I, you all know I'm very keen on this, I, you are all still responsible for your own understanding. The Holy Spirit will teach us. 
And my example of this is when I was a teenager, my, my dad was in the Navy, so we moved around a whole lot. We went to all kinds of different denominations of churches. And I heard all kinds of confusing things, and I'm going, and what was funny is they all used the same verses in different ways. And it's like, and there were certain things I go, God, I need to know what does this mean? The Holy Spirit told me what they meant. When I went to Bible college, now, now I started learning how to use the tools and get into the Greek and Hebrew, and I found out something very important. The Holy Spirit knows what he's talking about when he teaches you. He wrote the book. He knows what it means. The only thing was now I could defend what I believed. It wasn't this is what God told me. This is, this is why I believe what I believe. And that's very important. Because if you're just spouting off what you believe and what you think, it doesn't stand up very well, especially if somebody comes along and says, well, this, that, and the other thing, and they can lead you astray real quick and easy if you don't know why you believe. And it's important to understand the why behind it. And that's what I always want to do is I want us to understand the why and know this is what we believe and why we believe it that way. And I am not one of those people that say you can't make questions about God, you can't, you know, and I've explained it very often. I go, if you can't ask why in church, where else are you going to ask why? How do I know there's a God? Well, if you can't ask that question in church, and there are churches that you cannot ask that question to, people go crazy if you doubt the existence of God. Well, I don't want people asking that question outside of church. Because if they ask it outside of church, they're going to be told, of course there's no God. I want them asking inside church so we can get into this is why we know there's a God. You know, why do we know God's word is true? Why do we know that Jesus died on the cross? There's all kinds of things that I want people to be able to ask why. And this is why I, I cover the creation as much and often as I do because I want people to understand God created this world in six literal days and rested on the seventh day. So I like to tell people he actually created seven days. He just rested. He just created a day of rest on the last one. Um, but he did this, and it is important. Can you be saved without believing in creation? Yes, you can believe in Jesus, but my question is why? If you don't believe that Adam and Eve were literal people who, who sinned, and brought sin upon this world, then why did Jesus have to come to this world? You know, without Genesis being true in those first 11 chapters, there's no reason to believe the rest of the Bible, which is why Satan is so active against the first 11 chapters of the Bible, because if he can destroy them, the very first prophecy of the Messiah is in Genesis 3, that you know, when he told uh, Eve, you, you, the, you shall, your seed shall crush the serpent's head and the serpent shall bruise his heel. Well, the first sign of a Messiah was because of their sin. And so if it's not true, then there's no reason for Jesus. And this is why it's very important. And people go, well, I don't, you don't have to believe in, in Genesis, uh, the creation story and the flood story. I'm going, well, then... I don't know what you're going to believe. If you believe the word of God has fallacies in it, you've already set yourself up for a problem. You know, because then I've got to pick out what else isn't true in the Bible. And if I will admit that the first part is not true, then they'll, then they'll start ripping apart every other miracle, every other event. So I must believe what God writes. And it's very important. And this is what these Levites were told to do. You are to bring understanding to the people. And that was why they were scattered all around the, the nation so that they could bring understanding in their locations that they were at. 
and people wouldn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem all the time every, every Saturday just to, just to hear the word of God because, number one, it took days to get to Jerusalem, so you would have to be, you know, take three or four days to get to Jerusalem, get to Jerusalem, be taught, go back home, and it'd be turned to go back to Jerusalem again. Uh, so that didn't work. And God only told them they had to go to the temple three times a year. Three times a year, all the men in Israel were to go to the temple to worship God. Now, they could go whenever they wanted, but three times a year, it was commanded that they go. Now, most of the time, they didn't obey that command. <laughs> so this is what he says, you know, you, these people that are teach, which are holy unto the Lord, says, put the holy ark in the house of which Solomon, the son of David, built. Now, we don't know why the Ark of the, of the Covenant was not in the temple. We don't know. Some people suggest, well, while he was refurbishing and repairing, they had taken it and moved it someplace. Uh, maybe his father had moved, you know, taken it out so he could put his idols in there. We don't know why the Ark of the Covenant was not there. And he was the last one to really know, know the place of the Ark of the Covenant. To this day... The Jewish people do not know where the Ark of the Covenant is, or at least they're not saying where it's at. And the, the temple that Solomon built did not have the Ark of the Covenant in it. So I don't know what they did on Yom Kippur, what they, you know, what, where they sprinkled the blood on in the holy place, but they did not have the Ark of the Covenant. And if they find the Ark of the Covenant, this will be a really big deal for them to put that in to the holy place. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant is that small box that has the... Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and the rod that budded in it, and has the mercy seat over. It sits in the holy place. Uh, it's not to be touched by anybody. And the, and the Levites, when they carried it, were to carry it with the poles sticking out, and they were to carry it by the poles. And if you touched it, you died. I suppose that there's a spiritual reason why, why you can't. Well, they don't have a temple to put it in, and if they, if they saw it outside, they'd be worshiping it as an idol. Remember when they were wandering in the wilderness and, and they were sinning and God sent the serpents in to bite them and, you know, the disobedient ones. And then Moses, God told Moses to put a brass serpent on a pole. Well, later on in Hezekiah's day, they started, they were worshiping the brass serpent, you know, because humans want to have something they see. And they're going, well, if it was that powerful back then, we're going to worship it, worship it now. And they weren't worshiping God. So I really do believe if they saw the Ark of the Covenant, they'd be worshiping the Ark of the Covenant and not God. Which is why I believe that Jesus never wrote anything or had his picture, picture drawn or anything because he didn't want people worshiping his stuff. They wanted him worshiping him. And this is something that happens with human beings. But most of what we see is not what he looked like. And I don't think he wanted us to know what he looked like because he doesn't want images being worshiped which is why we're told make no graven images because God does not, he knows our habit of worshiping stuff. And I've seen it even in Christian churches, people will treat a sanctuary, you know, is what they call it, you know, where they meet for Sunday morning and you can't do anything else in there because if you do anything in, in there other than worship God and everything, it's wrong. And they'll have their crosses and their stained glass windows and, and people start worshiping the room instead of, instead of God. And it's a very fine line, and it really is. I've seen people who worship the Bible. You know, not the words of the Bible. The Bible itself, they will worship it. They won't, if it falls, they'll be panicked because it is so holy that, you know, uh, if it falls apart, they cannot get rid of it because it is, 
Uh, and I've seen this happen, that they worship actually the Bible itself, not the words of the Bible. And when I went to a Jewish synagogue, it was, it was impressive on one side. In the middle of the service, they got out, they, they unlocked this cabinet, they pulled the scrolls out, the scrolls were covered, and they paraded the scrolls all, all around, the, up, down the, up one aisle and back down the other aisle. Everybody's, oh, and they're reaching out to it. And it's like, okay, we're either hyper-honoring the Word of God or you guys are worshiping the Word of God, and I can't quite tell which it is, but it bothered me. And then they took it out and they had their ceremony of uncovering it. And, and the guy got out with his little gold pen to mark his face and he started singing out the, the words. And then they wrapped it all back up, covered it back up and paraded it back out. And everybody did the same thing all over again. To me, when I was looking at it, it's like, okay, from what I'm seeing, we're worshiping that scroll. We're not worshiping the words of it. And that is always a problem. And it, it's a very fine line, very fine line between getting into his word and, and worshiping him because he, because he is the word and actually worshiping the Bible itself or worshiping our singing. There are some people that are so strong, you have to sing in a certain way or you're not, you're not worshiping God. Kind of what we were talking about earlier. If you have the wrong kind of music, you know, the wrong kind of this, that, or the other thing, or you don't sing the right words, uh, you're, you're in trouble. And Music has always been a problem for churches since the very beginning. Uh, Luther brought in, you know, took it from Gregorian chants that nobody actually sang, and he brought it into everyday music. You know, and he had a big problem because he liked to go to the tavern and drink his beer. And he loved the music that they played. So what did he do when it was come time for him to write his hymns? He set them to bar music. And people freak out that you're bringing that bar music into church. You know, uh, kind of takes us back to what we were just talking about. Yeah. You know, uh, in today's world, what is the big thing? Do you sing hymns or do you sing these high rhythm, loud music? Either one of them can be where you're worshiping. You're worshiping the style becomes bad. If you're listening to the music and worshiping God through the words of the music, I don't care what music you play. Now, I don't particularly like certain types of music, but my oldest son used to listen to the Christian rap artists, you know, and so he'd be singing in the hallways of, you know, and he'd be singing the Christian rap songs and people going, what? Never heard that song. What are you singing? And he was able to tell them about God because they heard rap music with Christian words. So it can be used to reach the world. Again, if you're focused more on the music than on the words and what's being presented and the message, then you're probably outside of where God wants you. And so that is very important. But music has always been a problem in the churches. You know, and you know, I get people when I, you know, when they first first switching out of hymns to the common music, people would complain there's drums out there, there's trumpets up there, and they go, that's not godly. I'm going, well, I don't know. You're going to argue with God in the, in the Psalms where he said to break out the trumpets and the drums and the and the symbols, you've got, you've got, you're going to have a hard time arguing with me that that stuff shouldn't be used for worship. Yeah, God tells them to use the, you know, he, he brings out an entire orchestra. Yeah. If we were a big enough church and had the talent, we'd have a, I'd, have, I'd go for an orchestra. You know, you guys want to play your violins and your violas and your, and your harps and your guitars and your, you know, various types of drums, be my guest, as long as... They're playing it in a worshipable way and not trying to stand out. And this is part of my problem sometimes when I watch some of these groups where people are 
draw attention to me as I you know, play, my, play these licks on the guitar and I, I want you to pay attention to me rather than paying attention to God, that bothers me. All right? Or the piano or whatever it might be. And that bothers me because now they are making themselves the center of the worship rather than God the center of worship. And so, like I say, there's a very fine line you know, on all of this. And it gets difficult. We need to be very careful. And here he's saying, you guys get this, bring the ark and put it in the temple, in the holy place where it belongs. And again, we don't know, was it taken out because they were re renovating and they needed to go in the holy place to, to renovate and clean up? Had his father lost it? You know, we don't know. But all of a sudden he's saying, let's put it back where, we're going to put it back where it belongs. It's going back where it belongs. And so he put that in and he goes, it will not be a burden. You're not going to carry it anymore. Because remember, during the wilderness wanderings, each of, the, each of the three Levite groups had certain things they were responsible for when they would break down and break down the tabernacle. And the priest would go in, they'd cover all the stuff in the holy place and the holy of holies. And I can't remember which tribe it was, but one of the tribes carried all of that stuff. Then they would tear down the, the walls and the t of the tent and everything. And another, another tribe carried all the tent stuff. And then another one carried all the tools and, and poles and everything. And then when they got to where it was going, they all put, put up their stuff that they were responsible for. And so this is what he's telling them. You guys no longer have your job. You're no longer carrying around the tabernacle. Now it's time to serve God in the temple. And this is what David told him. He says, you know, there's so many of you and you're not carrying the carrying the tabernacle around, it's now time for you to do these other jobs. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, verse 4 says, And prepare yourselves in your houses of your father after your courses, according to the writing of David, king of Israel, and according to the writing of Solomon, his son. So in First Chronicles chapter 24, David had divided the Levites and the, and the, and the priests into 24 different divisions and said each one of you will get to to work for two weeks at a time then you'll go away and then 25 weeks later you'll come back again <laughs> and work for two weeks so they got to work at the temple or, or when david was there the tabernacle one month one month out of the year and the rest of the time they got to stay at home doing whatever it is they would do at home and there was an overlap on, on Saturday so that there were two courses at the same time because that was the day that they were busy. So David divided them up and said, okay, you're only going to work this, this few, this little, this short time. Excuse me, one, one, week, at a, one week at a time, two weeks a year. Uh, so that was, the, that was what they would do. They would be divided up and not have to work all that much. And I, Josiah saying, okay, get your act together here's your here's your courses you're all to work on your course when you're when your group your your family is called to work you're going to come from wherever you're at you're going to work for your for your week and then you're going to go back um, pretty easy job i guess you know one, two times a year in the temple and the rest of the time you got to teach at home and take care of take care of regular business uh, and so this is what he's telling them get ready and it says, stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the families of the fathers and after your divisions of, the of your family, of the Levites. So the holy place, remember, the temple was broken up into three parts, All right, especially at this time. You have the, the courtyard where people would bring their animals in, 
the men, sorry women, you weren't allowed in that, inside the, that wall. You brought your animals in, they were sacrificed. They would take the blood into the holy place, which had the altar of incense, the showbread, and the menorah. And once a year, the high priest would carry the blood into the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat resided. And that's where they would bring the uh, sin offerings blood and sprinkle it on the on the altar. And they would do that once a year. And that was the high priest got to go in once a year to sprinkle that blood. And he hoped that he had confessed all of his sins because God said, if you come in without being pure, you were going to be killed. And so they talk about a rope being tied to their leg just in case they stopped ringing the bells that uh, they were attached to their the bottom of their garment. And I have not found a historical reference to if anybody ever died, but I have heard te- pastors teach, and I don't know what their source is, that three or four people, uh, high priests, had died over the years in the holy place. But I had not found uh, the references that they're, they're looking at. But I think I would be terrified I was, if I was the high priest going into the very presence of God to offer a sacrifice. It's like I would make sure that I had confessed everything I knew. And God, if I forgot anything, here's an extra sacrifice for anything I might have forgotten. So, uh, But that was the formation. By the time that Jesus came along, uh, they had another court outside of that wall. And that was called the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women. And that's where everybody could go. But you couldn't worship God there. You could be taught there, but you couldn't, you couldn't go in and offer sacrifices. And they had a great big sign that said, any Gentiles or women beyond this point were, were going to be killed. So, uh, so he's telling them, get ready to do by your divisions. And verse 6 says, so kill the Passover and sanctify yourself. Prepare your brethren that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So... Passover. The first Passover was in Egypt, of course, the 10th plague that God said, take the Passover lamb four days into your home, examine it on the, on the fourth day, kill the, kill the lamb and put the blood on the, on the lintel and the, the top and bottom of the, the doors and it will be a, your protection. The death angel will see the blood and no longer pass, you know, pass over your house. And so they did this, and they were told to keep doing this every year as a reminder of what God had done. But even more than a reminder of what God would do, it was a prophecy, basically, of what Jesus would do for us, because Jesus died on Passover as the Passover lamb on the cross. And when the Passover lamb was killed, it was examined for four days, they would kill it, they would not break any bone, and it was to be totally consumed by the next, before the daylight, or, or, or burnt. So this is Jesus, as none of his bones were broken, which is an amazing fact. I mean, he was, they were out of joint, they were out of, out of place, his, his body was broken, but none of his bones were broken. And because he was the Passover lamb for us. And so he's, this, they're getting ready to celebrate Passover for all that was. And we know that his grandfather had celebrated Passover. We know Solomon practiced Passover. We've seen Passover at various places. And the Jews have all kinds of things in Passover. One day I may get somebody up here to do a message on a Seder and go over all the stuff that they do. And it was very amazing to to listen to and 
and watch all the stuff they do for the Passover meal and how there's so much symbology in it that they don't even understand what they're doing uh, as they do so much of the extra symbology that we don't read about in the Bible. But yet they're, all the extra stuff that they do is so biblical. They've got one spot where they take a bag out that's supposed to represent God and it's got three, three pieces of matzah in it. They take one, the middle one out, which would represent Jesus, and go hide it and the kids have to go find it. You know, and then they celebrate that they found, they found God out there in the, you know, but they don't recognize what it is that they have just done. You know, and so it's very interesting to do this. And one day we'll see if I can get somebody out here to, to do one of these events that don't want to charge too much for it. So, but they're practicing the Passover. They're getting ready. He's saying, sanctify yourself so that you can kill the Passover lamb. And then it says in verse 7, And Josiah gave unto the people of the, of the flocks, lambs and kids, all for the Passover offerings, for all that were present in the num- to the number of 33,000 bullocks that were in the king's substance. So he gives each person who needs a lamb for the sacrifice, a sacrifice. And on top of that, he gives them 33 bullocks to be used as a burnt, uh, uh, 33,000 bullocks to be used as burnt offerings. That's a lot of killing that's going to go on in the temple. You know, just the 33 burnt offering, the 33,000 burnt offerings is going to be a big deal because they have to have their throat slit, the blood drained out of them, skinned, and then offered on the, sacrifice, on the sacrifice. That would take a while. These guys got good at what they were doing. Beyond that, every family brought in a lamb that had to be butchered off so that they could then take it and make their Passover dinner. I don't know how large Israel's popula- is the population of Israel was at this point, but if you figure, make it 100,000, know, you probably still have 20 or 30,000 families each bringing a lamb to be killed for that, for that ceremony. Uh, Josephus tells us that in Jesus' day, when he was alive on Passover, that they would have almost a million people in Jerusalem. Because all of the men of, Jeru- of Israel would come to Jerusalem and oftentimes for that event would bring their families. And they said the Kidron Brook ran with blood because there were so much lambs that were killed. And they drained them off down the hillside into, the, into this. There was that much going on. And these guys got good at killing and skinning these animals so that they could be able to be used. So, I don't know, 33,000 cows, and that's just Josiah's offering to the people. All right, plus, plus a lamb for every family. Mine says that there was a total of 30,000 sheep and goats for the Passover offering, and there was 3,000 cattle from, all the, from the king's own possessions. Uh, when I looked it up in the words, it's 33,000 bullocks and doesn't even mention the cows, uh, the, the sheep, other than he gave sheep to them. Where yours says oxen, yeah. yeah, well, cow, cow and bullocks are the same thing. Cow and cow. Yeah, bullocks. Bullocks? 
bullocks, bullocks, which is a cow. <laughs> um, now the princes are going to give oxen on it. So, and it says his princes gave to the people uh, 2,600 small cattle and 300 oxen. So they're giving a bunch of, so these are burnt offerings. The cattle and, and, bull and oxen are for burnt offerings. They're not part of the Passover offering, which is lambs. The lamb was offered for the Passover, and it was one lamb per family. And if your family was too small to eat the whole lamb, then you could combine families and have a celebration together. So you'd have to figure out how much, how much my family could eat. And, and basically, they figured that it took 11 or so people to eat the entire lamb. So if you had a small family, you'd go and find another family that was small, and you'd come together and... and come together for this so we're talking a lot of animals you know because the bullock and the oxen were sort of burnt offerings and then for the Passover they had to offer another whole bunch of sheep the burnt offering was not eaten it was totally burnt up except for the part that the priest got the priest got a part of the bull burnt offering uh, now, and these, because they're said clearly that's for burnt offerings and not for Thanksgiving offerings, which are a different offering altogether. So, uh, so this is a lot of animals that are dying in one day. And this is what the Jews are waiting for. They're still waiting for the day that they can have their temple back and offer the sacrifices that they're supposed to offer. So on uh, the Day of Atonement, they can offer their sacrifice and have their sins forgiven because they don't know what to do right now. They know that they need the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. They don't recognize that Jesus died for the remission of their sins. And so they're sitting there, how do we have the remission of our sins? How do we get forgiven of our sins? So the rabbis have decided, well, if you do enough good works, you're gonna be okay. Even, though, even in the Old Testament, it very clearly says that you cannot do enough works to please God. And yet, their only conclusion is, well, we don't have a temple to be able to offer the, the yearly sacrifice for the sins, so therefore you, God, God's going to understand that we have to do more good than bad, and he's going to take it because, because he, uh, we can't offer the sacrifice. And yet they know it's not enough. They know when they get into the Word of God, which is why the Orthodox Jews to this day are itching to get their temple back. They want a temple built so they can have sacrifices and obey God the way it says in the scriptures. Now, many of them don't care. They don't believe the word of God anyway, but the Orthodox Jews believe the word. And they struggle with this. How do we give our sins forgiven is a struggle for them because they understand that it can't be just do more good than bad and you're going to be okay. And they're looking forward to this day when they can have their temple. And this will lead into the Antichrist. The Antichrist will come up and arrange for them to be able to build their temple. And if you pay attention to the news and everything, the Jews already have, they're training the priest on how to offer the sacrifices and how to serve God and do all this stuff. They are set to go. As soon as they get a temple built, they're ready to go. And that, and that, and that is their plan. And it will not surprise me if it's some kind of prefabricated building that they have all the pieces all put together so as soon as they get cleared, that building will go up so fast it'll make people's heads spin. Uh, even if it is made out of rock, they'll have all the rocks all cut up because David did. David had the rocks already built and quarried and numbered 
so that when Solomon started building it, he goes, there, there they are, just start putting the puzzles back together. So it would not surprise me if they don't have, if they want to make it out of rock, they probably have it all, you know, laid out and ready to go. So that as soon as they get, get that permission to do it, it'll be up in, in no time. Uh, and then they will start offering their sacrifices up. And at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will walk into the temple and say, uh, by the way, I'm God. Worship me. And they will realize that they have been tricked. And they will abandon Jerusalem and, and hide in the wilderness. Most people believe Petra, and I have no problem with that. But they will, they will go someplace safe where God will protect them for the last three and a half years of the, of the tribulation period. Um, and here is what's going on. They're killing all of these animals. And the, especially the Orthodox Jews are waiting for that day that they can have the sacrifices started again. And, you know, it's hard for us to even imagine that somebody wants to kill off animals. But the Jews aren't the only ones out there. There are many religions that still to this day in parts of the country offer sacrifices on altars and kill them. Uh, you know, Satanists actually want to kill people to this day and offer them on their sacrifices. And every once in a while you'll hear about that happening. If you watch and listen to the right places, it's kind of hidden in the news because they don't want you to know this stuff. But it's out there. It's happening. And the Jews are looking forward to the day that they can obey God's word and offer those sacrifices that they know that God told them to do before Jesus came. Now, Jesus finished all of them. He was the symbol of all these sacrifices. And we no longer have to offer sacrifices because Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the, the sin offering. He is the... He is our burnt offering and all of these things that we have. Uh, so we don't need to be offering sacrifices. And so this is all what's going to happen out there. And uh, let's see, where are we? We've got all these animals. And then verse 9, and, and Konaniah and Shehaniah and Nethael, his brethren, and Hashabah and Jehiel and Jezebad, chief of the Levites, gave unto the Levites for Passover offerings 3,000 small sheep and 500 oxen. So now, note what this one says. Huh? 3,000 or 5,000? 5,000, I'm sorry. Um, this is given to the Levites. What's going on in here? These poor Levites and priests are so busy, <laughs> they're not being able to take care of themselves. So these leaders said, okay, you guys are so busy, you can't go back home and get your own, your own animals. We're going to give you your offerings. We're providing for you your offerings. And this is quite a gift to them. I mean, that's a very large gift that they're taking care of them. And um, verse 10 says, So the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their place, and the Levites in their courses according to the king's commandment. So they're busy. They're all standing in their places. And this is kind of funny because this is something that I notice as a pastor. You know, most people will get to rest on Sunday. Unless you're the pastor, you get to teach the whole time and then you get to prepare for the night service. And, you know, my day is busier on Sunday than the rest of the week. Uh, and this is the way it was for the priest and the Levites. They were busier on the Sabbath day of rest than the rest of the week all, all put together probably. So I don't know what day they took off, but they probably, you know, you get to have Friday off, you get to have Monday off, and we'll work real hard on the Sabbath. Uh, but this is where what's going on. And... Verse 11 says, And they killed the Passover, and the priests sprinkled the blood from their 
from their hands and the Levites flayed them. So this is what happened. They killed the animals. They would cut them all up. They would skin them. And remember a long time ago when we did the book of Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we talked about part of the priest and Levites pay was every animal that was offered, they got to skin them and they got to keep the skins, the hides. So that was part of their pay. They could tan them. They could, you know, uh, work with the leather. They could sell them. They could do whatever they want. They got portions of most of the offerings, so they would get, you know, a shoulder of it that belonged to them. So they were, when everything was working well, they were paid very well. They had lots and lots of meat, lots and lots of, lots and lots of hides, and so they were very well taken care of. Plus, whatever tithes and offerings came in, beyond these sacrifices. So the sacrifices alone gave them quite, you know, kept them sustained. And then when people would bring in their tithes and offerings, it went to the, pre, the, the Levites and the priest. So they were, when everything worked well, they were taken care of. And so this is what they were doing. They says they were, they were doing all of this. They were sprinkling the blood. They were, the Levites, the priests were killing the animals, sprinkling the blood. And the Levites would take over and skin them and, and, and gut them and all the stuff that they were supposed to do with them and prepare them to get back to the people who were there. Now, I don't know. I've never done any research to find out what our day and age can do for skinning and cleaning animals. But I imagine if you got, if you did it all the time, you'd get very fast at it. Now, I've seen cooks and chefs that can can flay animal. You know, take the they take the dead animal already. They don't have to kill it, and, and but they can cut it up in a in a in a very short case. And I'm sure that these guys got very good at what they were doing and could do these thousands and thousands of animals in a fairly short time altogether. Um, and I know the butcher, butcher, uh, butcher plants move these animals through very quickly. Uh, they get so good at it, they, you know, they slice it down and then granted they make a mess because they let all the stuff fall out and into, into pits and stuff. Um, but, and they probably did the same exact thing. You know, we're going to cut these up and down, you know, out come the internal organs and we're going to skin it real quick and, and get it done and then move it on. So all of this happened very quickly. They were very good at what they did and uh, because they got a lot of practice at it. Anything you practice at, you get pretty good at. And this is what they're, they're going to do. Verse 12 says, And they removed the burnt offerings that they might give according to the divisions of the families of the people to offer unto the Lord as it was written in the book of Moses and they did so and so did they with the oxen and they roasted the Passover and the fire in the fire with fire according to the ordinance but the other holy offerings sawed they in pots and in cauldrons and in pans and divided them speedily among all the people and afterward they made ready for themselves and for the priest because the priest the sons of Aaron were busy in offering of the burnt offerings and in the fat until night Therefore, the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priest, the sons of Aaron. So here we are having what's going on. These guys are, especially the priests, they are so busy. And we find out toward the end, they didn't have time to prepare their own, their own stuff. They've been killing animals all day long and sprinkling blood and preparing them and putting them on the fire. And... They really, here in verse 12, says they removed the burnt offerings that they might give according to the division. So they're keeping the Passover offerings and the burnt offerings separate because they're totally handled differently. 
right? The Passover animals were being given back to the people so they could take them home and they would roast that lamb in their home and not break the, break the legs. They roasted it and they made all the other stuff with it and they would celebrate Passover. The burnt offerings were skinned, flayed, and the priest would get a very small portion of it, the shoulder of it, uh, and the rest of it was burnt completely. If it was a Thanksgiving offering, it was totally different. They took the inner parts of the animal, burnt them. They took about a quarter of the animal and they gave the rest of it back to the people to have a Thanksgiving party for God. Uh, so they would take back their animal, but we're not talking about Thanksgiving offerings in this particular one. We're talking about burnt offerings. And this has got to, I mean, I can't even imagine what the smell of all of this is going on. You know, burnt flesh does not smell good. And yet God says it's a, a pleasing aroma to him when they would offer these sacrifices. I think it's the obedience that was pleasing to him, not the smell of the burnt flesh. But they also took the hide off, so it wasn't hair being burnt. It was literally just the meat being burnt. Uh, and it says all of this was going on, and they did all of this to the oxen. And then it says they roasted the Passover, according to the ordinance. And they took pots and cauldrons and pans and divided them speedily among the people. The priest would take their portion and they put them in a great big boiling pot and then they would get their portion out of that. If you remember when you read uh, Eli's sons, they did not want boiled meat. And so they were trying to take the meat before it was offered on the altar because they didn't they go and we don't like boiled meat we want roasted meat we want we want we want our steaks cooked on the cooked on the on the grill we don't we don't we don't want we don't we don't want boiled meat and I kind of understand that I'm not a big fan of boiled meat either but God said their portion was boiled and this is what they're talking about they apparently they had pots and pans all over the place boiling this boiling their portion of the meat so that, and then giving it quickly out to everybody saying, we've got so much of it, get it, get it to your houses and start having, start having feast everybody. And it says it gave it to all people, which is very unusual. Didn't say it just went to the priest and the Levites. I think they had so much that day. You know, they had so much that day, they're going, uh, we priests can't eat this. You know, let's give it to anybody who wants, anybody who wants this meat, we're giving it to them. And and I don't know how many people wanted that meat because they're going to have lamb that night. They're supposed to eat the entire lamb. They, they didn't want the, the boiled stew meat. They, you know, they wanted the lambs, and yet they had to get rid of all of this stuff or burn it, burn it up you know, outside the camp. So this, this is quite an event going on. And this is what he's picturing. I'm just trying to get us to really understand. This is a lot of offerings being made, a lot of meat that's being, being distributed to people and being organized after this. And then in verse 14 it says, and afterward they made ready for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy offering the burnt offerings and the fat until night. Therefore the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests of Aaron, the sons of Aaron. So they were being very nice and saying, okay, you guys are so busy, we're gonna cook your Passover. We're cooking your Passover meal because you don't have time to cook your own Passover meal, so we are preparing it for you. Because you can almost picture this. If the, if, I don't know that the priest knew this, but you know, 
you're working all the way until it gets to be dark. And you're supposed to be cooking, your, your, your lamb is supposed to have been cooking during this whole afternoon because you can't light a fire after dark, you can't work after dark. So they're probably looking at this saying, you know, they didn't have watches at that time, but they're looking at their sundial over there and saying, it's getting awfully late, the sun's getting low, we're not going to have time to prepare our meal. We're not going to have time to do what we need to do to celebrate Passover. And then to find out that the Levites had taken care of them as well. What a blessing. I mean, this is a great blessing, you know, because they could have said, well, sorry, you guys don't get to practice Passover, you know. You were so busy, you couldn't do your job, you know. We're going to go enjoy our dinner, you're out of luck. But they honored the priest and took care of them as well. And I think that's a great thing. And I know most people, when they read that, don't recognize what's going on there. But this is a big deal. How many priests there are, I don't know. But they're all busy cutting up animals and burning them and setting them aside and, and getting all the offerings done. And they're probably, like I say, they're getting toward the end of the day realizing we're not ready for Passover. We're not ready. And then find out that they've been taken care of. But remember, during the millennial kingdom, there are people who are not believers in God that happen to make it through the millennial kingdom without take, uh, the tribulation period without taking the mark, and they're going to have more children. Those people who did make it through are going to have children. And so for a thousand years, there's going to be people that need to learn about God and make decisions for God. And this is why Satan comes along at the end of a thousand years and finds people that he can draw away from God because they're not in glorified bodies. Now, during the millennial kingdom, people's lives are much longer. Uh, they're healthier. They're, they're, they're living closer to what they were supposed to do. It's more like the Garden of Eden time where everything is, is generally good, but it's not perfect. People still have a sin nature and they will make decisions against God and for God. But Jesus will rule with an iron scepter and he will enforce obedience during that period of time which will give them good reason when Satan says it's time to rebel against God, they're going to go, yeah, we've been waiting to be able to rebel against God, and there's going to, he's going to draw off a lot of people ready and willing to, to disobey God because he is ruling by force before that. And Satan will have his one last hurrah. And I, you know, people go, well, why was Satan released at the end of a thousand years? And it's very simple. What does man say? If we just had a perfect environment, everything would be good. Well, they're going to have as close to a perfect environment as you can for 1,000 years, and people are still going to choose to sin against God and prove that that last lie is a lie. Because we hear it all the time. Well, you know, if we just didn't have all these bad things going on around us, we didn't have these temptations, we'd all be good. No, we still have a sinful nature. We still do not obey God. Even we as Christians, when we died to our flesh and still have problems with sin. So this is what's going to happen out there is that God is going to say, sorry, this is, your, this is the last lie being defeated. Satan has lied about this and you, you, you think it's been true. Adam and Eve sinned from a perfect in garden. And they didn't even have temptation before that. They didn't have a sin nature and still they sinned. And, you know, the people with sin nature are not going to be able to live perfect lives and, and choose God unless they want to choose God. And there will be people in the millennial kingdom that choose God and those who don't choose God. Thank God we will have our glorified bodies and we won't be tempted to sin because we have our glorified perfect bodies. 
And we will be ruling with Christ during that period of time. So I'm looking forward to that. But all of this is going to happen. And the Levites honored the priest by going in and making their, preparing their Passover. And we're going to end here. Lord, we ask you to be with us. Help us learn to honor you in all of our sacrifices. And, and Lord, that you've asked us to serve you. Help us learn to serve you in a great multitude and to serve others, which is serving you as well. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.